Good morning. Welcome to part four of Anti-Fragile. This is inspired from Hebrews 7, where the author of Hebrews 7 describes Jesus as having this indestructible life. And all of Jesus' followers embodied this anti-fragile, indestructible life. And we live in an era of crushing anxiety. It's imperative that we live in the life of Christ because he is the antidote to fragility. And we know this to be profoundly true because it's the words in 2 Corinthians 4. It says, well, outwardly we are wasting away. If you're under 30, you have no idea what this means. I am just now at the point where the rad dad described last week on Instagram and said, hey, by the time you're 35, you should have an entire wardrobe of clothes that are just one size too small that you keep with the eternal optimism that one day you will fit into them again. Hey, why is there an ambulance over in my 30-year-old neighbor's house? Oh, Zach, yeah, he just slept wrong last night. I, I, I wake up and I actually have to do stretches because one wrong move and I will feel like I'm wasting away for a week. So we feel the tension here. We feel this, what we desire is to be inwardly, we are renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Before we get too far into it, i got to share some bad news with you. You heard Charlie read the text, right? And you heard the judgment seat of Christ. You cannot talk about the judgment seat of Christ without talking about sin. This is going to be my third message in a row to you that I have to discuss the subject of sin. And at first I was like, come on, man. Like, Give me a softball. And now I'm starting to realize that I think Charlie just thinks I'm really qualified to talk about sin because he thinks I'm such a filthy sinner. <laughs> yeah. In all seriousness, though, Paul the Apostle, he describes himself as the chief of sinners. He is not black. What he is trying to say is that if you think that you are far from God, know that I was even first. So if it is possible for God to redeem my life, then without a doubt, I know that he can make me first. And so my prayer is that my personal sin and my personal experience with God's grace would make this message relatable to you. And this is my prayer. God, I ask that you would equip me with your truth and grace over the next few minutes, that everything that I say would be an expression of your heart, and that I would be equipped with the Holy Spirit to say what we need to hear in this room collectively and individually. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Kids are uh, so candidly able to tell us the painful, unsolicited, unfiltered truth. I said to my oldest daughter, you know, if you listen to mommy more, she wouldn't have to yell so much. She said, same goes for you, Dad. As I whole walked right into that one. For the record, my wife does not yell that much, okay? Uh, and then, what about this? I have a friend, she, she's in line at the grocery store. She's got like her seven or eight-year-old son with her. And the line is long. So an older gentleman behind her says, oh, you know what? How about um, I just tell some jokes and pass the time? So he engages with her. And after about three or four really pathetic jokes, her son, he says loud enough for everyone in line to hear, Mom, that's your fake laugh. 
said the only icebreaker that anyone could come up with was, so paper or plastic? And she just stared in the opposite direction of this man until she could swipe her card, grab her groceries, and run out into the parking lot where she gave her son some unbelievable truth. So John 1, 14 says that Jesus, he came full of grace, and he came full of truth. And I don't know about you, but whenever I read that, I think, oh yeah, give me full grace, Jesus. That sounds awesome. Maybe like three-quarters truth, Jesus, is enough, but... I don't need the full dose because it feels just too painful. You ever feel that way? I think most of us do. And the, and the proof of that statement is because of what we feel when we read this text, the text that Charlie just read. So we make it our goal to please him whether we are home or in the body. This is good stuff. This is our goal now on earth. And guess what? We are never done trying to please our father because he is worth doing. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And I read judgment seat of Christ and I go, zinger! Like, ugh! So a lot of us, we have the, 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 this wrong idea about the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus just read. He says that we will give an account for the good and bad. A good judge doesn't just punish, but he also rewards. I can just feel God's heart of goodness towards us. But I also sometimes think about this judgment seat of Christ in an incorrect way. So I grew up in a home in an era where spanking wasn't taboo. I got some whoopings. And I probably deserved more than I got, and I think I'm better for it today. My little brother and I, you know, were known, uh, my sister, she's an angel, but my little brother and I were known for having some poor behavior. And if we acted out that way, it was pretty common for us to get, um, to feel discipline on our high knees. And so we would often go out like this, all right sit you down, let me explain to you what you did wrong, let me, I want you to feel the consequences of your poor decision. And, but the worst was this. And it was early in the morning, you act out poorly, and mom says, when dad gets home. Because then what happens? You have to think about it all day long. Give me the swift punishment. I can take it right now. But to have to think about it all day. So one, one day my brother he has this less than stellar behavior, warrants the phrase from my mom, when your dad gets home. And it's just eating him up, right? He is haunted by this discipline that is just looming throughout his day. So he makes plans. At about 4.45 in the afternoon, I open up the door, I walk into my room that my brother and I share, and he has every pair of underwear spread on the floor. And he's going like this. He's suiting up. He's got six pair of Hanes on by the time that I walk in. He looked like he'd been doing squats for years. It was quite suspicious. So at 5 o'clock rolls around, my dad comes home, and my mom greets him at the door and fills in, okay, here is what I need you to do. My dad walks into the living room and calls my brother in. We all hear 
So my brother, he walks in, and this is where he made his first mistake. He struts in like he's got nothing to prove. So my dad rings the gong of discipline, and as soon as he does, my brother doesn't even Mistake number two. Like at this point is where you give the Tobey Maguire ugly cry in Spider-Man when you're Peter Parker mourning the death of Uncle Ben and it's just an ugly cry. No performance at all. So after a very brief investigation, I know, that was, that was, that was pretty cheap. My dad realizes what is going on here. And so... Now, there's the entire family audience in the living room watching my brother painfully and embarrassingly taking off all of these extra layers. There was lots of laughter, and there were some unavoidable fears. You could say my dad got down to the bottom of it. Guys, there's so many cheesy jokes. That's the other bad news of today. I'm sorry. But a lot of us, you know, joking aside as we think that, the judgment seat of Christ is just deferred judgment, but there is so much good in it, and it's not just punishment. There is a huge difference between discipline and punishment, and we're going to be getting into that today. But when, when I come across something in the Bible that feels like uh, they contradict each other, for example, a lot of us think that we need to be extra, afford people extra grace because the truth is too so we end up doing a disservice to people where we withhold the truth that they need to hear in order to be nicer to them, which actually makes us less loving. For example, if I'm standing in the middle of the street and there is a car that is barreling down the hill, I don't need you full of grace to be like, oh, Levi, you're, you're such a nice dude. No, I need you to yell. I need you to push me if you have to. Tell me the truth because a car is about to flatten me. Now, the judgment seat of Christ is different than the great white throne of judgment. A lot of us get those two confused. So the great white throne of judgment is in Revelation. And this is for those who have said, oh, Jesus, your cross, your resurrection, yeah, nice sentiments, but I've got my own way. And so the great white throne of judgment is reserved only for those who have denied Christ. But the judgment seat of Christ is only for those who have said, see this amazing life that is offered to me because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And so now I trust that he is good. He has his best interests for me. So I sign up and I subscribe to his expectations and I take responsibility for the way that I am supposed to be a dispenser of grace also. That I'm not just like Charlie said, consuming, but I'm living it into life. And here's the deal. Jesus has to enforce truth if he values truth. And we know that he values truth because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we see this truth and grace, and we start to think, like, I don't know how to balance this, because sometimes I give so much truth that I offend people, and sometimes I don't. I give too much grace, and it just feels like I'm, I'm walking around just a, a big softy. So how do I reconcile these two things? And whenever I come across something in the Bible that feels contradictory, I apply 
a lens of family over the text. Did you know that Jesus was the very first in the Judeo-Christian faith to call God Father? Before then, no person would have ever been so presumptuous to assume that they could call God as infinitely a Father as Father. So Jesus says Father. And and we're like, okay, yeah, you're the Son of God, you're allowed to call God Father. And then he says, now it's not just for you. It's for you too. And he says, I want you to pray my Father in heaven. So I know a lot of us have baggage when we think about family and we think about fatherhood. We've had less than ideal examples of that for some of us. But when Jesus is explaining God as Father, he's saying this is the most real parental relationship that you can possibly imagine. So let's say you've got a family. It's a mother and a father, and they have this baby. And at first it starts off really primal. Like you are just trying to keep this thing alive. You're not thinking about who it's going to become yet. You're just thinking, what am I going to do wrong? And so it's really primal. You know, it's like, oh, don't run out in the street. Don't stick that key in the receptacle. Like, you're just looking for ways to keep it from pain and from death. But then it moves from that into development. And you start thinking about, who do I want this child to be? What life and lifestyle do I desire for them? So it's the development of, I want you to uh, respect others. I want you to be respectable. I want you to be a a self-independent contributor to society. I desire that you would be successful in whatever right that might be for you. And I even want you to be happy. But the way that we do this is we are constantly in tow with blessings and rewards, punishment and discipline. And so, you know, it's, it's a lot more, like I said, primal, like you might get some whoopings if you're out of line. But as you age and you get into adulthood, it's not so on the nose, but there's still this relationship where your parents are telling you, this pleases me, this doesn't. For example, if you're like 25 to 35, your mom or dad might say, hey, when are you going to meet a good guy? When are you going to meet a good girl? And they're not saying, hey, I'm going to banish you if you don't find someone. They're just saying, I desire this for you. So then, let's say you've been married for a little while, and you know your mother-in-law might be like, hey, you guys seem to have this thing figured out. When are you going to give me a grandbaby? She's not saying, I'm not going to love you, but she's saying, I want this. And so how do we apply, how does God apply these blessings and rewards and discipline to us as people with free will? I think Paul, the apostle, he explains this so well in the book of Romans. And by the way, this is just a preview of an upcoming series we have. We are going to dive deep into Romans today. We are only going to scratch the surface, and I hope that it, it just whets your appetite because Paul in Romans is a fire hose to the face, but it is refreshing to the soul. And this is what he says. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given. So then he says, but it was not counted as sin, because there was not yet any law to break. Still everyone died. So he's saying no one was breaking the law, 
but they all felt the consequences of sin because sin was death. And this occurred for a long time, from the time of Adam to Moses, when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments in the 613 laws of the Torah, but leading all the way up to them, Paul says that people did what was right in their own eyes. But I'm not talking just about literal death. Yes, you have the very beginning story with Cain and Abel, Cain slays his brother. And there is literal death in this story. But there is also the pain that his parents felt from the consequences of jealousy, greed, betrayal. So there are people living out death, but not just literal death, but the expression and the feeling of all of the death that comes along literal death. So then Paul says, well, why was the law given? Was it given to us so that we would have our tail between our legs? No. It was not given to us for that. No. It was so that we had have the parameters to live in life, not to live in death. You see, it was more loving for God to give the truth to humanity than it was to withhold. Now God's, God's truth rules with his grace. And John 1 says that out of his fullness we have all received grace and grace. This is heaps of grace. This is abundant grace. For the law was given through Moses, but now grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. So then I think to myself, well, if there's just loads of grace, then why am I trying so hard not to sin? And that's because over the years, I've had a wrong idea of grace. Let's say that uh, you get a $50 gift card to some restaurant. Like, oh, yeah, you sit down, you're looking at the menu, and you think to yourself, I don't really want to get more than $50 of stuff here because then it's money out of my own pocket. But I also don't want to underspend because I know that there's going to be five bucks left on this gift card that I will never use. And so we think about grace the same way. And we're worried that when we get to heaven, God's going to say, Levi, dude, you had 40 grace points left. I bet you wish you had so much more fun. That's not God's desire for us in the way that we think about grace. Paul says, no, no, not so fast. Well, then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of this wonderful grace? The KJV says that, should we keep on sinning so that God's grace may abound? And Paul says, of course not, since we have died to sin. This is him saying, you don't want that life. You have died to death. There is so much more goodness ahead of you. How can we continue to live in it? And then Paul gives us, in just a couple verses later, he gives us this beautiful picture, a picture that you and I are going to see next weekend. Many people reenacting through the expression of baptism, these very words. He says, well, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That sounds so weird. But if you pause and think about it, you realize that when you are immersed in the water, you are showing that you are in the grave. You have died to death. 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, the glory of the Father leads me to worship God. But then Paul, he describes this thing that happens for all of us after baptism. Oh man, my life has changed. And then one hour later, we act out in sin. We're like, what is going on with me? What happens when I sin, especially when I know that grace is just going to be there anyway? And then oh, Paul goes here, he says in Romans 7, you can sense his frustration. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. So he's saying, yeah, I'm feeling it in my conscience. I know I shouldn't do this, but sometimes I do. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. And this is all teed up. You feel the tension of this, but Paul goes to Romans 8. He says, therefore, oh, my favorite verse in the Bible, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We go, okay, if there's no condemnation, what is this judgment seat of Christ for? Is it because we just have this God that is looking for an opportunity to discipline us? Have I disappointed him? Let's ask that question. Can we disappoint God? Disappointment is the combination of surprise and frustration. So let's break it down. Can we can can we surprise God? I get surprised all the time by the way that I disappoint my parents or the way that I disappoint you or you disappoint me. Do you hear so and so? They did such and such. They did such and such? Yeah. So and so so and so did such and such? I get surprised all the time. God cannot be disillusioned with you because he has no illusions about you. He knows exactly who you are and he knows exactly who I am. So we cannot surprise God. But then can we frustrate him? I used to have this imaginary voice that would come in my head right before I'd step on stage to lead worship and teach. And I'd hear God say, man, Levi, I hope this pressure, like God is up there biting his nails, like, hope he's going to put it out of the park. And it was filled with this, this shame, like, am I going to measure up because I'm not doing what God thought I could do? Have you ever seen a kid where their parents have such high expectations for them that they are in a constant state of frustration and therefore their kids walk around on eggshells and they're so petrified of making a misstep that they can't even make one step. That's what you call fragile. But in Luke 2, Jesus, when he looks over the city of Jerusalem that was being carried into to be crucified, he says that he wept for Jerusalem. He was not frustrated with them. He was frustrated for them. So if we can't surprise God and we can't frustrate him, we can't disappoint him. But what do we what do we do with this? He says, don't you see how wonderfully kind 
tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? In other words, be moved by this. Can't you see that this kindness is intended to return you from your sin? And if you have theology that says that God is you're constantly towing the line between them and disappointing him or not, you will be riddled with shame. It will eat you alive. And you will be the most fragile person you could be. So what is the right theology about the way that we think of God? There's this guy who went through his adolescence with a struggling relationship with his father. So his dad has these military-style expectations for him. Keep your eye on the ball. You're never measuring up. Keep trying, try, try, try. And so he goes through life, and then he ends up becoming an adult. And, you know, he ends up being fairly successful because he's used to dealing with the pressures of life. But he comes to this realization of that I don't just resent my dad. I hate my dad. And so... You know, he's a parent now, and he's trying to figure out, like, what do I pick up? What do I leave on the floor? Because I know not everything that my dad did was wrong. There was some good stuff in it. Like, look at my success. But he feels like he is pushing his son away, and that he is just trying to keep his head above water. And so, in a moment of desperation, he goes into a counseling office. He sits down with this counselor, and he explains all the backstory of that. This is my terrible relationship with my dad. Here's my son, and I feel like I'm losing him. This will just repeat itself. Counselor hears him out, he's just listening. He says, Okay. So your son, he knows your expectations for him? Yeah. That's the problem. I keep telling him, and he never does it. Okay, so he is absolutely sure what you're saying. Stop telling him. What am I supposed to do? I gotta keep telling him what the scoreboard is and how to measure up, how he can become the most that he can be. Counselor said, okay, well let's let me ask you this other question. What are you gonna do if he doesn't meet your expectations? Okay, let's think about this together. Are you going to love him any less? So you're not going to stop loving him? Maybe you go tell him that. Maybe you go tell him, I'm never going to stop loving you, even if you don't meet my expectations. This is not a guarantee. The son could take this unconditional love from his father, and he could leverage it to justify just about anything he wants to do and say, well, I don't have to worry about it because my dad's on the hook. He already said he's going to love me. I know I'm not going to push him away. There's no collateral damage. I'll just make a mess of my life. So I have, I have two daughters, and one day they're going to be They're going to have a free will. They already do. 
But they are really going to express their free will someday. And it's going to surprise me, and it's going to frustrate me. And I know that as they get older, my wife and I will have to say to them, hey, we have raised you in a way that we think you can experience the most life. It's not perfect, but we believe that there is goodness in the way that we have raised you. But you are going to have someday the opportunity to make choices using your free will. God, I like a lot of the stuff you did, but free will, man, like, don't take mine, but take hers. We just, we have this love-hate relationship with free will, and I know I'm going to also, but you know what I'm going to say? My wife and I are going to say, no matter what you do, I'm going to love you. So if you make a decision, and you fall into addiction, if you make a series of bad decisions, and you get an SPD, or you become unsingled, I am going to be with you until you either push me out of your life or until I die. Levi, you idiot. That's the dumbest plan I've ever heard. You've just enabled your daughter to go do anything that she wants. Well, guess what? Maybe when she thinks about getting in the backseat of that guy's car. And because of her relationship with her father in heaven and her mother and her father, she will say, you know what? I don't need anything that that dude's got. I'm secure in who I know I am. By the way, if she ever makes that mistake, I'll be surprised and I'll be frustrated. But I'm going to give her more grace than she has ever felt in her life. And she's going to need that same grace to pick herself up and to heal. And by the way, when they make mistakes that way, they're going to be more likely to let me know and I'm going to have an opportunity to coach them, to help them not make that decision five more times. So it is not a guarantee. But if our Father in Heaven decides that He is going to parent us through a strategy of truth and grace, you better believe that's going to be my strategy too. And it's not perfect, but I'm betting it all on truth and grace. I like my odds. There's something that we, I have dealt with in my own life, and I know my daughters are going to continue to feel whether or not they know that their father has unconditional love for them. They're going to have this relationship between guilt and shame. Let me tell you about the two reasons why I believe that God has the judgment seat of Christ. Because God takes himself seriously. I take myself seriously as the father of my daughters. If he is righteous, how can he let un injustice occur without acknowledging it and enforcing accountability. He would be untrue to himself and to what he stands for. But secondly, he knows that if we take our sin seriously, we will get to take his grace seriously too. And he really wants us to understand his grace. And here's how I know how badly he desires for us to understand his grace. Yes, the judgment seat is mentioned twice in the New Testament. But do you know how many times grace is mentioned? A hundred and seventy times. So you have a father who is saying, hey, I have expectations for you. Because it would be unloving for me not to. But I am never going to stop whispering in you. I'm never going to stop loving you. And I'm never going to give you any less. See, guilt is productive. 
guilt says, hey, Levi, you're out of line over here. This is not who you are trying to be. But shame, shame ended a long time ago when Jesus died on the cross for you and for me. Guilt says you've done wrong. Shame says that you are wrong. But you know what? When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, not shame on you. He said, shame off you, shame on me. In fact, the Bible tells us that the joy set before him, he endured the cross despising shame. And I have to ask myself, what was the joy set before you when the nails were going through your hands? What was the joy set before you when you were you have felt a spear into your side? What was the joy set before you when you felt the crown of thorns pushing into your skull? He said, you are rejoicing. I rejoice at the poor. He's despising shame, so I don't have to. Next weekend, you are right now, we have 78 people signed up to reenact the dying to death baptism and being raised to life and saying no to shame because they are no longer defined by their worst day. Guess what baptism is? That is when you enter into the relationship you said, I'm following Christ, and now guess what? I'm going to show off his grace. I am no longer defined by my worst day. No, I'm defined by Jesus' most heroic day on the cross, his greatest day. Do you believe in that? If, if you can hear the Father in heaven for the first time say, I'm never going to stop yet. Feel the urgency. Don't put it off. Sign up for Big Splash next week and say, yes, that is the life that is on offer to me, and I want the anti-fragility. I want the Hebrew 7 indestructible life that God has on offer. God, I, I thank you so much that you are not just a pushover dad. No. You're, you're the gritty dad who is going to dive into the trenches and all the mess with your kids. And you're going to track with us with truth and grace. And to say, I love you just as you are, but I also love you too much to let you stay that way. And I'm going to lead you into more life. And you are going to carry out my mission because you have received so much grace you must share with and if there's any person that is listening to your still small voice say, I'm not going to stop yet, that they would not put it off, that they go to the information center, they would come up front, or the prayer room, there are pastors and staff that you have waiting for them to talk to, to them and pray with them about their commitment to Christ. Thank you for being the kind of God that despite my sin, Despite all of my depravity, you still say, it's not because of your sin, but it's because of my goodness that I can invite you into a relationship because the joy set before you despise sin and shame by enduring the cross. So now, we are not defined by our state, but we're defined by Jesus' best day. And it is an awesome name truth and grace in the person of Jesus that everyone prayed, he said, Amen. Have a great week, church.